0: Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the U.S. economics and trade editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: This episode is the first of two special episodes about currency manipulation.
1: On August 5th, the world was treated to this tweet from President Donald Trump.
0: China is intent on continuing to receive the hundreds of billions of dollars they have been taking from the U.S., with unfair trade practices and currency manipulation. So one-sided, it should have been stopped many years ago.
1: A few hours later, the Trump administration officially designated China a currency manipulator.
0: To help us explain what is going on, we're going to be joined by some special guests.
1: Two of them are my colleagues, senior fellows here at the Peterson Institute. The first is Maury Obsfeld, And he's the one, yep, from your macroeconomic textbooks. He was the chief economist at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, from 2015 to 2018. And the second is Joe Gagnon. Joe was an associate director of the Division of International Finance at the Federal Reserve Board between 1999 and 2008.
0: We'll also hear from my colleague Alice Fulwood.
1: We'll be asking whether the Trump administration is right. Is China manipulating its currency?
0: The short answer is no. The long answer is this episode.
1: Before we start, I have a confession. I really hate exchange rates. I'm more of a tariffs man. So if you're like me, just stick one thing in your head. The complaint you'll most often hear in the United States is that the dollar is too strong and other currencies like the Chinese Yuan are too weak.
0: The reason you hear those complaints is that a strong dollar means that a dollar will buy you a ton of stuff in other currencies. It means that imports are cheap. Now, as someone who on occasion buys stuff, I quite like it when that stuff is cheap. But obviously, it can be really tough for the businesses and workers in America trying to compete with all those cheap imports.
1: It's also tough for US exporters, because it also means that it's really difficult to stay competitive in foreign markets.
0: So let's talk about why the dollar might be strong. And basically, it's reasons why foreigners want dollars, why demand for dollars is high, pushing up the price of those dollars. So they might want dollars to buy stuff that is made in America and priced in dollars, or they might want the dollars to buy American financial assets, like government debt.
1: There is a lot of demand out there for dollar assets, and some of that is because the dollar is kind of special. The dollar is a safe haven. U.S. government debt is seen as a very safe asset. And so when people are worried about the health of, say, the global economy, like, for example, during the 2008 financial crisis— They tend to buy dollars. So back in 2008, even though it was largely the U.S. financial system that was part of the problem, people still really wanted to hold dollars. And that pushed up their value.
0: Another way that the dollar is special is that it is one of the world's reserve currencies, and so basically, the dollar is useful for foreign governments to have if they face a financial emergency. Now, this is really important to understand because this is the main defense that countries use when they're accused of being currency manipulators. So they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah we're buying a lot of dollars, but we're just being prudent. We're just building up our dollar reserves for a rainy day.
1: Now, there is some history here behind this. There was a big financial crisis in the late 1990s, which affected a bunch of countries in Asia in particular, and meant that their currencies became really weak really fast. And that really hurt. It meant that their companies couldn't afford to pay their foreign debt. And it fueled this sort of self-fulfilling crisis where everyone was trying to pull their money out, and that ended up making the problem worse. And so a bunch of those countries then went into a sort of economic freefall, and they had to go to the IMF to ask for help. But that help came with some pretty tight strings attached to it. The IMF demanded that they take on some really major domestic reforms. And those countries obviously didn't like to have to do that.
0: If those countries had had dollars, they could have intervened to stop their currency from falling. They could have used those dollars to prop up demand for their own currency and to stop it from becoming so weak so quickly. If they'd had those dollars, they wouldn't have had to go to the IMF and be told to do all these reforms.
1: And so after that 1990s crisis, those countries made sure that if a similar crisis ever happened again, they wouldn't be put in that position. They would have enough dollars. So in the 2000s, they built up these massive reserves of dollars and dollar-denominated debt.
0: And at that time, the demand for dollars contributed to its strength. The message here is that there are a bunch of different things that affect the value of the dollar. And attentive listeners will have noted that we kind of skimmed over trade as a factor. And that's because America's trade position kind of goes the other way. Since the 1970s, the U.S. has imported more than it has exported. So it has run a trade deficit. And that's basically Americans buying stuff from the rest of the world with dollars and then selling them back less stuff worth fewer dollars. So there's this external imbalance. America is paying for all this stuff by borrowing and supplying the world with dollars, sending those dollars out into the world.
1: And Basic Macro 101 says that there are some adjustment mechanisms built into the global economy. It says that if you're persistently selling all these dollars to the rest of the world, which you're paying for by borrowing, eventually that's going to put downward pressure on the price of the dollar. It should make the dollar weaker. And then a cheaper dollar should make imports more expensive, exports more competitive, and that overall trade imbalance, well, that gap should fall. In practice, though, as America has seen over the last 40 years, these imbalances can go on for quite a long period of time.
0: Oh, we have an interruption from an impatient listener. What is currency manipulation? Good question. I asked Mario
2: The broad concept of currency manipulation is a government intervening in the foreign exchange market to prevent the exchange rate from promoting balance of payments adjustment.
1: From America's perspective, currency manipulation is where countries intervene to keep their currencies weak and to keep the dollar strong. And they're doing this to help their exporters stay competitive so that exports stay high and imports stay low.
0: And so that their external imbalances don't adjust. Almost every country in the world has agreed not to do this when they signed up to the IMF, but it does happen.
1: Now, in practice, when you're looking for evidence of currency manipulation, there are three things that folks have typically looked out for. One of
2: them is an undervalued currency, although how you determine undervaluation is uh, far from an exact science and uh, involves uh, some element of judgment and um, some uncertainty. Um, another is which is easier to establish, is uh, large and protracted one-way intervention in the foreign exchange market to um, accumulate foreign currencies so as to prevent your own currency from uh, strengthening. A third would be a uh, large and persistent trade surplus with uh, the rest of the world.
1: I should emphasize that there is a lot of judgment that goes into the first and third of those. It's really hard to know how strong a currency should be. And there's no particular reason why a country's trade balance should actually be zero. So working out whether an imbalance is too big is actually quite hard.
0: Murray said that foreign exchange intervention was easier to see. So we asked Alice how easy it was for her to see.
3: So it's fairly obvious to detect when a central bank is intervening in its currency uh, because it shows up in the data very quickly. The IMF in particular gathers sort of quite extensive data on the stockpiles of various currencies, FX reserves, And that usually comes out with sort of a two-week or at most sort of one-month lag. So you can figure out not quite in real time that central banks are intervening from the data.
1: We also asked Alice whether it was obvious why they were doing it.
3: What you tend to hear from central banks that do intervene regularly, particularly if they are intervening to buy dollars and sell their own currency, is that they're doing that to stockpile FX reserves. So you hear that from a lot of the Southeast Asian or Asian central banks that have an explicit policy of leaning into the wind of currency appreciation. And they want to stockpile FX reserves in good times because in bad times, when there are sort of more extreme downward pressures on their currencies for various reasons, they want to be able to credibly intervene to support their currencies during times of depreciation, because extreme depreciation or depreciation that happens very quickly can be quite damaging for their local economies. So that's sort of one reason that central banks say they intervene. Very few will explicitly say that they intervene because they want to depreciate their currency to help exporters. But a lot of people think that that is a sort of veiled reason for their behavior.
1: One of those people is my colleague, Joe Gagnon. So let's move on from the theory and talk about the recent history of currency manipulation. Here's Joe.
3: Well,
4: I think currency manipulation began to take off shortly after the Asian financial crisis in a lot of countries they wanted to not be running trade deficits and they wanted to run trade surpluses they felt they had invested too much at home and wasted the money and they wanted instead to invest abroad and run big trade surpluses and grow that waste and so they held their currencies down by buying massive amounts of dollars and euros and other currencies but mostly dollars And this peaked in the early 2000s, around 2007, 2008, when countries are buying over a trillion dollars a year in foreign exchange reserves to hold their currencies down and to prop up very large trade surpluses. And this had never happened before in the history of the international monetary system.
0: Among those countries that Joe was referring to, one was a lot more important than the others, and that was China. So some quick history of China's currency policy, Uh, China fixed its exchange rate against the dollar from 1994 to 2005. Then in 2005, it was re-pegged to a basket of currencies that included the dollar. And over time, it gradually got stronger. There was pressure on the yuan to get even stronger than the Chinese government was allowing. But basically, the Chinese government said, no thanks.
1: So to keep the yuan from getting too much stronger, the Chinese government basically sold a lot of yuan into the market to keep its price down. And it bought huge dollar reserves, including loads of U.S. government debt. And all that demand for dollars kept the dollar strong relative to the yuan. At its peak, there were insane amounts of money involved. According to data from the People's Bank of China, by 2009, China had $2 trillion of foreign reserves. And by 2014, China's reserves had increased to $4 trillion. One implication of all this is that the cheap yuan helped the Chinese to export a lot more than they were importing. In 2007, the Chinese trade surplus reached 10% of its GDP. That is enormous.
0: There was a decent case to be made back then that China was manipulating its currency. The signs were there, persistent intervention in the foreign exchange market, they were buying all these foreign reserves, and they had this huge external imbalance. And by the mid-2000s, there were a lot of people complaining There were two bodies at the time that could have pointed the finger at China, sort of named it a currency manipulator, and that those would be the U.S. Treasury and the IMF. But neither of them did it.
1: Reading the history books, it seems that basically there was a lot of internal politics involved. In the United States, Congress was calling for new tariffs on China during this time period. And the folks at the Treasury were worried that if they labeled China a currency manipulator, they would fuel that fire and perhaps start a trade war.
0: The IMF was the better place to label China a currency manipulator, to make it less of a bilateral confrontation, and the U.S. to try to work with others to get it done. In 2007, 2008, there was this big push to get China labeled a manipulator as part of its formal review, its Article 4 review at the IMF.
1: But obviously the Chinese were not happy with this approach. They were worried about being singled out and that something like this could lead to actions against them at the World Trade Organization, potentially countries filing formal disputes. And so they basically worked to delay things in the fund.
0: Then the global financial crisis hit in 2008, and confronting China was just not the priority. The U.S. really needed the Chinese to join this coordinated response to the global recession. They didn't have the political capital to burn on this issue. So the moment to deal with the currency manipulation, to call it out, that moment passed.
1: Now, this was all going on behind the scenes. In public, the Treasury was repeatedly going out and saying that the Chinese were actually not manipulating. And the Chinese were saying, yep, we're not manipulating.
0: You might wonder how this was justified. And basically, the argument was that to be a currency manipulator, it matters what you're trying to do. China was obviously intervening in foreign exchange markets, but they weren't necessarily doing it to get a competitive advantage. The Chinese said that they were just doing prudent financial management. And even if you don't buy that, as Joe says, it was complicated.
4: It wasn't like China sort of intentionally went out and massively bought currencies to push its currency down to grab a large trade surplus. It was really more the other way around. Their whole structure of the Chinese economy changed in a way that would have called for an appreciation that China blocked. But that's sort of less clear that China was, you know, masterminding some way of gaining a trade surplus through nefarious means. It was really an outgrowth of other things.
1: And we have another question from an impatient listener.
4: So what's going on with currency manipulation now?
0: Well, on Monday, August 5th, the Treasury finally did it. It formally labeled China a currency manipulator. I asked Mori whether he thought the Chinese were obviously manipulating their currency right now.
2: I think not only are they not obviously manipulating their currency, they're obviously not manipulating their currency. You know, after I arrived at the IMF in September 2015, China was suffering and suffered for a while large capital outflows. Had they not intervened, in that case by selling dollars, their currency would have depreciated dramatically. So in fact, there was a long period during which they intervened to keep their currency from going down, from becoming more competitive. They also tightened controls on capital outflows because in the process of intervening they were losing a lot of their dollar reserves. Their dollar reserves over several years fell from a high of 4 trillion US dollars to 3 trillion US dollars. So that's a pretty big spend in order to, you know, keep your currency from falling too quickly. So the, you know, the, the recent record in the last few years has not only not been one of manipulation to create an artificial competitive advantage, but one of preventing their currency from depreciating too dramatically in situations where it otherwise would have moved in that direction.
1: Recently, the dollar has been strong against other currencies for a bunch of different reasons.
0: Now theory says that another reason the dollar could be strong is actually the Trump administration's tariffs. So if you think through this, the tariffs have been making Chinese imports more expensive, so Americans buy fewer of them, and that means that they don't need as many yuan, and so the yuan should get cheaper against the dollar. So the tariffs should have actually been putting pressure on the yuan to get weaker. And basically, that means that Trump is accusing the Chinese of manipulating their currency to make it weak. But if anything, it's his actions that are helping to make it weaker.
1: And over the last couple of years, if anything, the Chinese government had been intervening, but they had been trying to stop the yuan from falling in value. But what happened on Monday, August 5th, was that the Chinese central bank basically stood back and stopped. They allowed the yuan to fall. And so now it takes more than seven yuan to buy a dollar.
0: Historically, they've really tried to avoid going through that 7-1 threshold. This really doesn't look like currency manipulation. The Chinese weren't pushing the yuan down. They just didn't prop it up. China doesn't even have a massive current account surplus with the world at the moment.
1: Yeah, I'm no detective, but this was pretty obviously not the work of some Treasury Department staffers.
0: Yeah, it was Trump. I asked Murray what he thought would happen next.
2: It's a very interesting situation because it hasn't happened very often. The last time China was designated was in 1994. China was a much smaller country, a much smaller player in global markets. You know, I I sincerely doubt that it made the front pages of any newspaper or moved the markets at all. Things have changed now, but, you know, we haven't seen this happen. And I think one of the things people will learn is that it's really of limited practical relevance. The U.S. could request bilateral consultations with China. The bilateral consultations on trade have not been going swimmingly, which is one reason why we've seen all this turmoil. According to U.S., legislation is also supposed to consult with the IMF. But while the IMF's Article 4 proscribes members from manipulating their currencies to create artificial competitive advantage in trade, it doesn't spell out any very strong sanctions on those countries again, it might set up a process of enhanced bilateral consultation, but it's not clear where those would lead or what teeth are in the process as long as the fund is not providing financial support to China, which obviously it is not. Uh, China is not you know in the midst of a crisis
1: program. The IMF might have leverage over China if China actually needed financial assistance from it right now, but remember. China would say that it was buying all those dollars in the first place so that it wouldn't need that financial help. And so it wouldn't have to do what the IMF told it to do.
2: So, you know, very unclear what the next steps are that would follow from the designation of China as a a manipulator. You know, what it does do is it, it does signal, you know, the intensification of tensions. I think to some extent it um, reduces the credibility of the US in this whole discussion. I mean, the fund in mid July issued its external sector report, which concluded that China's exchange rate and current account were not misaligned significantly. The US Treasury issued its spring uh, currency report, which did not designate China as a currency manipulator. and. Now, what we've seen is a relatively small move in the exchange rate through the supposedly magic level of seven yuan per dollar. And with no evident deliberation or analysis or further process building on the last treasury currency report, the treasury designates China as a manipulator. So how that would play you know, in the IMF executive board or in the eyes of the press or anyone else. It doesn't strike me as a judgment that's going to carry a lot of weight with anyone.
0: I think all of this tells us something that we probably already knew, which is that rules and processes don't matter under this administration as they did under earlier ones. I spoke to Mark Sobel, who actually oversaw the Treasury's report on currency manipulators for 14 years, And he said, yeah, the the document had political overtones, but he said it was a document that had analytic integrity. Now, I suppose he would say that. But he said that this designation of China meant that that had really been thrown to the wind.
1: Yeah, I do remember the good old days when rules mattered. Now, thinking about what's next, under a normal administration, naming China a currency manipulator wouldn't necessarily mean all that much. It could trigger some stern conversations In an extreme case, it could potentially lead to a WTO dispute. But under the Trump administration, who knows? So this is obviously an escalation, and it could be a pretext for other things. Like maybe President Trump could direct the Treasury to start selling dollars and try to force the dollar to get weaker and do a bit of currency manipulation of its own.
0: Next episode, we'll talk about ways of fighting back against currency manipulation.
1: And on that, we'll be hearing a lot more from Joe Gagnon, who's been making serious proposals on this front.
0: Sticking on this episode, though, on the topic of Chinese currency manipulation, I would like to leave listeners with the best summary I've seen of this designation by the Treasury of China as a currency manipulator. It's from Alan Beattie's fantastic FT column on the subject, which which I'm going to quote. He says, Making the designation now is logically incomprehensible, has no or negative practical value, and merely serves to underline the US's inability to force China to do what it wants. Apart from that, it's a great idea.
1: And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Maury Obsfeld, former chief economist at the IMF, now a senior fellow at Peterson, and class of 1958 professor of economics at the University of California at Berkeley. Thanks also to Joe Gagnon, also a senior fellow here at Peterson. Make sure and go read his book with Fred Bergson called Currency Conflict and Trade Policy, A New Strategy for the United States.
0: Thanks to Alice Fullwood, who covers finance for us at The Economist. Thanks to Mark O'Bell of the OMFIF. Thanks to Alan Beatty for writing his acerbic trade columns. And thank you to my husband for being the voice of President Donald Trump.
1: And thanks to my teenage daughters for being the voice of impatience.
0: And thank you to Colin Warren, who handles our audio. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes.
1: And I'm at Chad Bowne.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks.
0: Because two episodes about currency manipulation are better than one. And and I just want, at this point, to send a personal note from me to the Trump administration, which was that this announcement was extremely inconveniently timed. We had already recorded an episode on currency manipulation, and we had to redo the whole thing. So ultimately, we're going to have to do three episodes on currency manipulation. I would really appreciate it if you could take our recording schedule into account when you make these announcements. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Boom.